Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Thanks for joining us on the No Water Methodist podcast. Sorry we didn't get one out last week. We had a uh, a busy week and just couldn't get it out. But this week we are once again releasing the time from worship where we spent it meditating on God's Word together. Um, as always, our four readings were from the Revised Common Lectionary, and sometimes they're bound together in a cohesive theme, and sometimes they're really kind of spread out. This last Sunday things were spread out a good deal. Um, that began with a, a Joshua reading from when the Israelites were about to enter in on their military conquest and the, the promised land and the way that they spent their time. And uh, spoiler alert, they spent their time glorifying God before preparing militarily. So we talked about fulfilling the Lord's commands before fulfilling our own selfish goals and putting Him first in all things, which is, of course, a theme that we return to regularly uh, in every worship service. But then in our psalm, uh, we had the theme of uh, confession, confession of sin, and how the Lord requires that. And then in our Second Corinthians, uh, the fact that the Lord requires us to fear Him, to persuade others to, um, to live for Him, to engage in the ministry of reconciliation. And then finally, the, the gospel readings are Jesus talking about how we forgive sinners and offer reconciliation for sinners and even allow them to be treated better than those of us who are walking in the path of righteousness. So um, the the primary thing we're doing is just kind of tamping out, tamping down those prideful instincts that a lot of believers have and um, reminding ourselves of the basic things that, that Jesus requires of us in order to be in good fellowship with him and one another. So um, we're approaching the end of Lent, and uh, on a personal note, I'm about to have a baby, or rather my wife is, so just a lot of um, stuff going on here at the Noata Church, and just want to thank you for um, engaging with us, watching and listening to what we're doing, and just continue praying for us and supporting us in what ways you can, and God bless you for spending this time with us. The first reading today is in Joshua. Now, Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then Joshua. The first five books um, in Exodus begins Moses leading the Israelites through the wilderness. You meet the, the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt in Exodus. God sends Moses, his messenger, to free them through supernatural works, leads them through the Red Sea to Mount, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. They receive the covenant, but then... They look into the promised land. They send spies, and they say, there's giants in there. We, Even with God's help, we can't conquer these people. And God gets so mad at them, he says, none of y'all except for Joshua and Caleb are going to be able to enter the promised land. I'm just going to make the rest of you die in the wilderness. So for 40 years, they just wander in the wilderness. God doesn't starve them to death. He sends them manna. He makes it so their clothes don't wear out. He gives them water uh, from rocks sometimes. Uh, but even so... They are not allowed to come into the promised land until every one of that first generation, including Moses, finally dies from old age in the wilderness. And so they have this, they have a couple battles in the wilderness, but then they enter into the promised land. The the Jordan River forms the eastern border of Canaan, the promised land. 
and to enter in, rather than constructing a bridge, they just march right through the, the river and God holds the river waters back. You remember the Red Sea, how God parted the waters? This time he just stops a river and he says, go on through, guys. And there are witnesses that see this. And so today's reading is going to start off with how these witnesses received this, this army of hundreds of thousands of Israelites coming into the promised land and then what the Israelites do from there. So let's give our attention to our first reader. Good morning. Our first reading is from the book of Joshua, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, which you can find on page 343 in your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gebeth Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from all of you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal, and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at even in the plains of Jericho. And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten at the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is a big transition point in the narrative. For, for a long time, 40 years, Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness, and God has been providing for them. He's been sending bread of heaven. Um, their clothes didn't wear out. They, uh, they learned to lean upon the Lord. Finally, they've entered into the promised land, and what are they going to do here? They're going to invade. They're a hostile invasion force, and they are going to destroy the local inhabitants. A lot of people have a problem with that. The scholar I followed that, that explains this pretty well is Michael Heiser. He makes the case very clearly to me that these people here were the only remaining, remaining survivors of the flood. Okay, so remember the flood was put on earth because the watchers, the angels came down and slept with women and had these awful hybrid children that were evil. They turned into giants. And then the, a lot of the Old Testament describes the local inhabitants there as giants, all right? 
And so these people needed to be eliminated. They were part of this uh, original heavenly rebellion that was still impacting earth, and God had raised up the Israelites to go in and wipe them out. So if you've never heard that before, now you have. Think about it. Anyway, they're going to go in, and they're going to kill everybody. And this is a big military invasion. They've already gotten in fights with some Amorites and Moabites off to the east. Everybody knows they're there to do battle. And yes, they're, they, uh, their hearts melted in fear. They no longer had the courage to face the Israelites when they saw that their God was fighting for them, and he withheld the waters of that river. However, I would still think that it's a risky thing to come in as an invasion force and then kind of demobilize yourself. They set up this camp. They end up calling Gilgal because the Hebrew word Galal means to roll, G-L-L, Gilgal. Um, and God says, today I've rolled away your guilt, all right? And this has to do with repentance. This has to do with renewal of covenant. But the very first thing that they have to do is get circumcised, all right? And if you don't know what that is, they only did it to males. They didn't do it to females. But that's where you grab the foreskin of the penis and you cut it off, all right? And I'm sorry to say that word from the pulpit. I know it's weird. But there's no other way to describe circumcision. It is what it is. It was a way of showing that you're in covenant with the Lord. God gave it to Abraham to do. All the patriarchs did it. All the Israelites did it throughout their time in Egypt. But it explains when they went into the wilderness, for some reason, whenever boys were born, they stopped doing it. So they're God's people. They're being renewed in covenant with him. And so they sharpen their flint rocks and they get to business. Hundreds of thousands of men all at once circumcised. Now, lest you think that this isn't a big deal, there's a story in Genesis where one of Jacob's daughters, his only daughter, Dinah, is out in the woods, ostensibly alone. She encounters a man who then rapes her and he falls in love with her. And he brings his father to Jacob and says, my son has fallen in love with your daughter. Please give her to us that they might marry and that our people and your people might get along and we might mutually benefit. And Jacob says, well, you know, God gave it to us to, to be circumcised and we can't be in fellowship with any, anybody who's uncircumcised. So if you go home and you get all the men to be circumcised, then yeah, you can marry Dinah and we can have trade together. So they go home and they somehow convince all the men of this city to circumcise themselves. And while they're, they're recovering from all this, they're in terrible shape, just two of Jacob's sons come into town and kill all the men, kill all the men. That's how demobilized they are by circumcision. Here you have this hostile uh, uh, Israeli, Israelite invading army coming in and demobilizing themselves. Does that seem like a good idea to you? Hypothetically, a big local army could come in a mass and just come wipe them all out. It's a very impractical thing to do, wouldn't you think? And then instead of getting to business and, and moving against the people before that they can get their defenses in place, they stay and have the Passover meal. And if you've read the Old Testament instructions about Passover, there's a lot that goes into it, okay? And they haven't set up shop yet. They've just set up this little camp. It, you better believe this was hard. So they circumcise themselves. They have Passover. And then they, uh, they rename the place and God stops feeding them. They start eating the local food. They, they are no longer provided for by God. All of this happens before they start invading other towns. What I'm trying to highlight here is their invasion strategy was not practical. Their invasion strategy was very risky. And they seem to have prioritized loving and worshiping the Lord before their own safety. Does all that sound fair to you? So most of us would be fine with that assessment. Man, those Israelites, they sure were faithful. They renewed that covenant very well. What's that got to do with us. 
Here's what I think it's got to do with us. Anybody here ever have a busy life? Go ahead, raise your hand. It's, it's not a sinful thing to have a busy life. Have big demands at work, have a lot going on in your family, have very demanding finances, just have a lot of drama going on, maybe have some bad health issues. Uh, there's a lot that can happen. And it's a great temptation. I hear people do it all the time. I haven't said good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, it's a very tempting thing all the time to say, I'm very busy. I don't have time to pray. I'm very busy. I don't have time to go to worship. I'm very busy. I don't have time to go to Bible study on Thursday evening or get out my Bible first thing in the morning. I'm very busy. You know what? I need to be far from the Lord for a little bit because I need to focus on other things. Y'all ever know anybody that does that? I'm sure none of you have ever been that way. But I, that's a very natural human temptation. Hey, I've got a lot of stuff going on. I need to focus on that. Going to worship would just distract me. Going to Bible study would just distract me. I need to keep my eye on the ball. Well, the thing is, the ball is God. The ball is God. And the whole reason you're doing anything else is to please and glorify him. Anytime you're sacrificing your relationship with God for something else, you're putting the cart before the horse. Do you know that saying? That you're putting minor things ahead of the major thing. We forget that God is the major thing. Your life is not about you. Your life is about him. Your life is hid in Christ. And that means that everything you do should glorify him. And there are a lot of people who say, well, I need to stay away so that I can do this other stuff so that I can glorify him better later. I'm sure none of you ever do that. I need to stay away from the church right now so I can focus on my career. I can make a lot of money and then I can give to the church more later. I understand the logic of that, but that's stupid. That's not how this works. God demands his due every day. And if that means you don't get promoted, fine. If that means you don't have as much money, fine. If that means you don't have as much friends, fine. If that means that your family's not as close as it could be, fine. I'm certain we've all heard of fathers who are absent while their children are growing up. A father says, you know what, i got to bring home the bacon, so I'm going to be away working 12-hour days all the time. And they're a stranger to their kids and their wives. And even though they have plenty of money... Whenever it comes time to retire and relax, they don't know their kids, and they're estranged from their wives. And that's what our relationship with the Lord is like, only we're not the father, we're the child. And we're the child staying away from the father, saying, oh, I'm just going to do this to glorify you, but no, I'm not going to pray to you or hang out with you or your people. I'm not going to be a part of your family. And that means that we're estranged from God. We don't get those years back where we are not with the Lord. You never get those years back. We're going to be talking in the gospel reading today about people who fall away and then God gets them back and there's so much celebration. Don't let the celebration distract you from the sadness of people living their lives outside of Jesus, away from the community of faith. It is a sad and terrible thing to live outside of God's grace. And every day you do so, you're rolling the dice on your own salvation. Because you can die any day. Anybody see that footage of that Chinese uh, passenger plane this, that crashed this week? They weren't even trying. They just <clears throat> right into the ground. No survivors. One of the weirdest things I've ever seen. And it's a great allegory for life. We're just going along. Every single person on that plane, they've been alive every day until that day, and then it ended. And that's our lives. And we continue to think that we have tomorrow and next week and next month and next year. We plan that far out. Today is the only day we've got. And the Lord is asking, what are you going to do for me today? And God help us if the answer is nothing. I'm going to punt till tomorrow. 
till next week, till next year. The Israelites, they entered into a big arena. Every moment counted, and yet they put God first, and God rewarded them by going into battle with them. And it's the same deal with us. Put God first, and he will never leave your side. Put him anywhere but first, and you won't have him with you as you go through your life. And that's a sad life. Psalm 32 is found on page 766 of your hymnal. Play that C, please. The response sounds like this. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. Let's sing that together once, and then we'll, we'll read together. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy, you upright in heart. Blessed are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When I did not declare my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. Therefore, let those who are godly offer prayer to you. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You encompass me with deliverance. We've been talking to God. Now we're talking to each other, just so this is clear. Do not be like an unruly horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, shout for joy, you upright in heart. So in the previous reading, we were talking about some impractical things that the Israelites did to, to renew their covenant with God and be in good standing with him. Here, this also talks about a way of life that to many seems foolish or impractical. It's definitely not serving. It's talking about the practice of confession of sin. Now, confession of sin, Protestants got away from because that's something the Catholics did, and we, in a lot of ways, threw the, the baby out with the bathwater. Just because we don't believe in priests being closer to God than us, we are a, a priestly nation, and we've been given a way of life to lead, and part of that way of life is confession of sin. So it's not just 
the things that we saw in the Old Testament, there are a number of things that get added onto our plate as ways that God expects for us to, to return his love to us. God pours out his love toward us. Jesus died on the cross for us and his blood is applied to us. That means that there are a number of ways in which we're expected to respond in love every day of our lives. And so the Old Testament commands were get circumcised, observe the Passover. Now, those are two things that are Christians supposed to get uh, circumcised nowadays? Are we supposed to be circumcising our, our little boys? No, we're not. That's the whole book of Galatians. If you haven't read the New Testament, you don't know this. Paul was very upset with Christians who were trying to circumcise themselves or their sons. He says that is going backwards. The, the, uh, the covenant we have through Christ Jesus is better. Don't you want that covenant? Don't go to the Jewish covenant. He's, 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 he's formed something new for you. Don't circumcise your kids, okay? Now, the reason we do it nowadays, if you don't know this, it's very normal for people to circumcise their kids. It's a weird thing that we started doing in like the 1800s. There was a thing that started happening in Great Britain where they decided they loved Jews all of a sudden. It's called philo-Semitism. And I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm also not philo-Semitic. They're, they're Jews. They're God's holy people. I hope they do well. But they started circumcising their kids and naming them things like Hezekiah and Ebenezer and stuff, words that, names that you find in the Old Testament. It was just a fad, okay? And the fad died off. The philo-Semitism died off. But... You had a whole generation of men who were circumcised, and then whenever it came time to do things with their little boys, they said, well, I don't know. I was. Go ahead and do it to him. No reason. A few years ago, people started talking about it for hygienic purposes. I think that's all been debunked by now. It's, I don't think it has any hygienic benefit whatsoever. Um, so if you have a little boy, consider not doing it to him. Um, I guess I just kind of gave away Jesse's business, but anyway. He can forgive me later. Don't. Don't y'all come to him in like 10 years being like, your dad preached a sermon where he told us your business. I didn't do that in Delaware. I found a more delicate way to talk about it. So anyway, um, the thing I want to highlight here, you know, if you didn't hit on it, if you didn't catch it while we were going through, verse 3, it said, when I did not declare my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. This is why we have to confess our sin is, when we don't, we feel God's judgment upon us, and we can run from it, we can deny it, we can say it doesn't bother us. His judgment's upon you whether or not you feel it. And his, his judgment only leaves you when you repent. And to repent, you have to name your sin. It's very basic. So verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and then you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's how this relationship with God works. Yes, what Christ did on the cross was enough to cover all of our sin. But if we want his blood to be applied to our hearts, repentance, repentance, repentance. That is why Christ all throughout his ministry was telling us to repent. That is the condition. So then you have a bunch of obstinate people going, well, I don't want to. I don't know. I, I think I can do it some other way. And that's what verse 9 is there for. And I, I kind of paused and made you focus on it. Do not be like an unruly horse or a mule. I can't pretend that I've ever tried to ride. I did ride one of Jeff Holt's horses one time. It did not like me. It tried to headbutt me. It missed me by that much. I'm never doing it again. Don't be like an unruly horse or a mule without understanding whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle. If you don't know this, you got, you got a bit. It's a metal bit. You put it in their mouth, and to get control of them, you yank them around, and it is not pleasant, okay? 
And that's how God interacts with humans who act like animals, who try to buck him and do things their own way. He'll whoop you around, and it'll be painful. And there, have a lot of, there are a lot of us who have had an animalistic time in our life where we are not submitting to the Lord, and he just trashes us, you know. And thank God he does, you know. Otherwise, we would be in a stupor of animals all of our lives, you know. Don't be like that, though. There's no reason why you should suffer needlessly. Just go ahead and give in. Who's stronger, you or God? That wasn't a rhetorical question. This was just an easy attaboy answer. Who's stronger, you or God? Who's smarter, you or God? Who is gooder, you or God? So give in to him. We, we hold up these obstinate people as people to be admired or something. No, there, there is no nobility in fighting against the Lord. Just give in. Let him rule over you, and you will be at peace. You will be right with God. All right, let's, uh, let's sing again. No, let's read. Uh, our Second Corinthians reading is going to tie this together. It's going to talk about the new man. It's going to talk about the ministry of reconciliation. It's going to talk about the importance of persuasion. There's a lot here. We're not going to hit on all of it. Let's keep our hearts and minds open to receive this third reading. Our third reading is from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, chapters 5, verses 11 through 21, which you can find on page 1629 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of mind, as some say, it is for God, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. creature. All things, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the word, world unto him, not in putting their trespasses onto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The word of the Lord. So there's a lot here that we're just not going to understand today unless we've already spent our time in Second Corinthians personally. But I, I wanted to focus on this first verse. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. The assumption is that all of us fear the Lord. Since we all know that, we try to persuade others. Persuasion. That's not a word people use anymore. We, uh, we live in a very intractable time where we see per, if someone is persuaded that they must be weak-minded. Okay? So I've got my mind made up on this thing. You're not going to change. I remember the first time... <laughs> I've told this from the pulpit so many times before. It just really hit me like a, a bag of rocks. 
there was a guy in my first church, and he, we were disagreeing, and he, he said, you can keep on talking, Pastor, but you're not going to change my mind. And I just went, what's the point in talking to you then? And there really wasn't any point in talking to that guy. And you know what? Years later, he was wrong. <laughs> he didn't see it. And the thing is, do you think maybe there's something in the world you're wrong about? Let's be honest. Probably. Unless you've been made perfect. And even then, you can still be wrong about things. Odds are you and I are wrong about one thing or another, and the only way we're going to see it is if we listen to someone else and we can be persuaded. One of the things that Jesus is is the truth. We need to see the truth, but the only way to see the truth is to listen to other people and let them help us discover the truth, to listen to the Bible and let it help us discover the truth. We need to be persuadable. And then the task we've been given is not to just sit here as saved, lovely people, and God is just letting all those people rot, and we don't have anything to do about it. Rather, our job is to go out to that broken world and persuade the people of it as to the truth of Jesus Christ. We are supposed to be persuasive people, and that means in our words, yes. But it also means in the way that we live, and so that's why Paul goes on after that. I'm trying to live in such a way, he says, that you can be proud of us. And it's not this, oh, Dad, I, I hope you're proud of me sentiment. It's a, we are bound together spiritually. I am living a public life, and I hope by the way I'm doing it, you take pride in me, that you're glad for my example. I hope that you're not embarrassed of me. He says, I might seem kind of crazy sometimes. If I am, it's because God is so crazy and wonderful. And if I seem sane sometimes, it's because I'm maintaining my respectability so I don't dishonor you. He said, you should be proud to be associated with me. That's the concern here. And we Christians, we should be proud to associate with one another, don't you think? I talked about. No, we'll talk about that. Well, let's go to this section. Verse 15. No, verse 17. Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I was reading recently about how you see these studies that come out about evangelical Christianity in America, how it's supposedly dying or whatever. The, the main categories for how statisticians do this, you have mainline Protestants, evangelicals, Catholics, and then black Christians. For some reason, they just separated all the black folk. I, that seems racist to me. I don't know. But anyway, they, they, and the way you might say, how do they know the difference between mainline and evangelical? And the way they did it, this started in the 70s or the 60s. They started asking people who took these quizzes, have, do you identify as born again? Have you been born again? And if they said yes, they were evangelical. And if they said no, or what are you talking about, they were mainline. Is the United Methodist Church associated with the evangelical tradition or the mainline tradition? We're the biggest mainline church. We're the biggest mainline denomination. That means that statistically you could count on Methodists to say, no, I am not born again, or what are you talking about? We should be ashamed. If you are a Christian and you are not born again, you are not a new creation in Christ, then you are not a Christian. Jesus said, unless you be born of water and the Spirit, you will have no place in the kingdom. To say, I am not born again, but I'm a Christian, is to say, I'm following Jesus, but I still want to go to hell. It makes no sense whatsoever. We are a new creation. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. This, this is what stands in the way. Some, some people will say, well, I just got to do it this way. It's the way I've always done it. This is who I've always been. Nope. That's who you used to be. Now in Christ, you are a new creation. 
Just because you've always done something or always not done something does not mean that's who you should be today. Once you get clear about who Jesus is and what he requires of you, guess what? That's the new man. That's the new person in you. That's what this is talking about. Our next hymn, we're going to talk about the new creation. So anyway, it talks about that. Then it talks about, I'm gonna, the final part is the ministry of reconciliation. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to read the whole bit to you again, but the notion here is if you and I have been reconciled to Jesus, and if you are a Christian, you have been, his blood on the cross cleanses us, wipes away our sin, makes us worthy to be in relationship with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. If you have been reconciled to God, then you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And just so we're clear, to reconcile means to take people who are enemies and make them no longer enemies. Maybe they're not best buds, but you're taking people who hate each other's guts and you're helping them get along. That's the ministry you and I have been given. You and I have enemies in the world who hate us. Our job is to persuade them. Our job is to befriend them. Our job is to love them. We know people in our lives who hate each other's guts and there's bad blood. Our job is to be peacemakers and to get in the midst of that and help people get along and be good to one another. And when someone's being a jerk, say, hey, I love you. Stop being a jerk. And when someone's being a pushover, saying, hey, I love you. Stop being a pushover. You need to stand up for yourself to enter into these relationships and help people to be grown-ups. We live in this age where the, the grown-ups in the room aren't behaving like grown-ups anymore. We need to be the grown-ups in the room. We need to be the peacemakers. We need to be the reconcilers. If you don't want to help people get along, if you don't want to forgive your enemies, then your heart is still hard and you're not listening to Jesus. Jesus forgave you so that you can forgive others. It's that simple. It's so simple. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I just want the simplicity of that to sit with you. No, I'm going to keep talking. Do you know, can you think of all the times you've sinned and been terrible to God and how he's within his rights to hate you? and be angry with you and turn his back on you, and yet he hasn't, and yet he died for you? Can you imagine being as gracious as our God? I know I can't. But he did that so that you can be that gracious with others. Here's a basic question. Should Christians live differently than people who don't know Jesus? Yes. That's one of the clear ways we're supposed to be doing it. Our fourth reading this morning is from the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. Verses 1 through 32, which you can find on page 1462 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. All right, time out. Jesus is going to tell three little stories, two short ones, a long one. All three are going to be about how you and I receive sinners in the church. Okay? That's just on the front end. Now hear these three stories. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep at, until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So that was story one. Story two. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. 
Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. All right, so this is story three. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. I got a different translation than you guys, don't I? I got the NIV. I don't know why that happened. All right, I'm going to read the screen with you guys. Uh, Verse 13. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. I like that better than wild anyway. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his be- fain mean he, he would love to have done it. He would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck. And kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again. And he was lost, but is now found. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry about the mix-up with the translations. I know that's kind of hard, but in all three of these stories, you have Jesus uh, preaching to us about our relationship with sinners. What's our relationship as the church to be with sinners? Now, as individuals, that's a little more fraught. You know, Jesus spent time with sinners, yes. But was he just smoking and drinking and dancing with them? No, he was calling them to repentance, just like he did with the not sinners, right? It's just 
You know, think of this, this boy, the, the, the prodigal son. That's what this last story is called. How, was, how's, how, how did the prodigal son like living away from his father? Did he enjoy himself? He did for a minute with harlots, and then the money ran out. And then he was taking care of swine, pigs. That's something Jews hate to do. They're disgusting animals, and the pigs are eating better than he is. Was he having a good time? No. And that's why he went back to his father, and he disowned himself as his father's own child. He had, he had just squandered everything. And then the amazing, scandalous thing is that his father welcomed him back. You know, and that's the kind of God we have. He rejoices over sinners who come into the fold, and he gives them blessings. And it might seem like, you know, hypothetically, there might be a terrible sinner out there that they come in here and they genuinely repent, and all of a sudden they're just the star of the church, it feels like. They're serving on committees, they're just doing wonderful work, and everybody just thinks they're so great. And somebody else has just been humbly sitting in the pew and serving in their capacity and tithing for 40, 50, 60 years. They might be going, huh, I've done more for this church than this person ever has, and they did so much, you know, they're scandalizing this church by the, the life they had, and now we're known as the one that has that Jeffrey Rickman in here. Like, like that's okay. And, you know, churches do this. You know, I, but let me just say, much more often churches are very eager to receive sinners who genuinely repent. I know we have this stereotype of churches that, that block people out for getting divorced or for being a, a young girl that's, that's pregnant out of wedlock. I've heard a lot more stories about churches hungrily grabbing people in who are at a dark place in their lives and ministering and loving them. I hear about that all the time. People don't talk about that because they want bad guy churches. They don't like churches that actually practice what they preach. But it happens all the time. There are going to be people that come in through these doors, and they are sinners, let me tell you. And they know it. But they know that they don't want to sin anymore, and that's why they're here. Why on earth would a sinner want to come in here and persist in sin? It makes no sense. Why would they sit and listen to some guy just go on and on and on about holiness? They, that makes no sense. The people who come in here are those prodigal children who've been living in sin, and they're sick of it. They're tired of it. They're, they're living miserably. They need to be with their father. Are we going to escort them into the presence of the father? Oh, I love that some of you said yes, because it's really hard. Sinners are hard. Saints are hard. We got, we got people in this church that are hard to love, and they're really trying. You got people that have never tried a day in their life. They're going to come in here, and they are crazy crazy. I can't tell you how many crazy people that have come to me, and sometimes you just can't work with them. Sometimes they just can't do it, but sometimes they can, and you have to practice that forgiving seven times 70 business, because they're just going to mess up all the time. They're going to do wrong and not even know it. The thing that's really hard about our age, and I don't want to end on this, so I'm going to think of something happy to say about it afterwards, but in Jesus' age, they didn't have things like meth, methamphetamine. They didn't have things like television, and nowadays, we've got a lot of people who are in sin, but they're not wanting to repent of it because they're high. They, they know they're a sinner. They don't feel shame because they're not in their right mind. They're out of their mind. They're in that animalistic mind. And there have been a lot of people who come to me when they sober up. But then one time I knew a drug dealer in jail. I never knew this. I never done meth. I don't, I don't want to do meth. But he said there was a time last year where he, he said, I was high for nine months straight, asleep, awake, morning, evening. He was high for nine months straight. Can you imagine? And then even people who don't do drugs, you've got things like Netflix or network TV that's just constantly playing stuff to distract you. You got the radio. You got how many people actually sit in silence anymore, actually think about their lives anymore. It's much more normal for people to have constant input from radio, TV, internet, friends, drugs. There's just constant 
distraction so they don't have to think about how miserable and pointless their lives are. Jesus came for the people who realize how miserable and pointless their lives are and want to do something about it. I'm distressed that in the age we live, so many people are being kept asleep. They're not repenting. They're not ashamed of their sin. They're not even thinking about it because they're thinking of the next thing. And so the prayer I say all the time is, wake this world up, Lord. Lord, do whatever it takes, but we cannot keep on going enslaved to distraction. I'm going to come back. I'm going to end on this note that we began the second Corinthians reading with. Our job, since we have learned to fear the Lord, is to persuade others. And maybe that begins with persuading your friends to turn off the TV every now and again. I remember my deceased grandmother, every time I went over to her house, the TV was on continually. And me and my cousins were constantly distracted. And finally, one of me or my brothers would go over there and just turn the TV off. And they kind of wanted to fight us, but we had better conversations at that point. We are more available to one another. And sometimes it's a loving thing just to go over and turn off somebody's radio or TV or say, hey, man, put your phone down. I'm talking to you. And then once you're fully present, that's when you can be truly vulnerable. And that means they're vulnerable to you and you're vulnerable to them. And what do you know? That's human connection. Brothers and sisters, as we live our lives, let's be fully alive. Let's be on. Let's not be distracted and and discouraged let's be focused on what the what's the main thing it's god let's put him first thinking of our first reading today let's put him first above all things and then let's minister in that way to others we're ambassadors for christ let's show what that looks like